This morning, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're continuing our study in the book of 1 Corinthians 12 through 16. Many of you in Sunday school are doing chapters 1 through 11, and then during this worship gathering time, we're doing chapters 12 through 16, and we've made it to chapter 15 this morning. To start us out this morning, I want to show you a word. Kids, pay very attention to the word that is going to show up on the screen here, okay? At the top of the word, or at the top of the screen, is a word that you need to know. This is a very important word, kids, if you don't already know this word, okay? It's the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. How many of you know the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Yes, you better. That's the word that Mary Poppins uses in the chalk drawing scene in, in the Mary Poppins movie. Kids, if you haven't seen the Mary Poppins movie, you can ask your parents if that'd be an appropriate thing for, for you to see. But you, you learn this word. She sings this little song. In the song, you find out that supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is something to say when you have nothing to say. And isn't that what we really need in our lives? Something to say when you have nothing to say. But actually, if you look up this word in the dictionary, you'll find that it means extraordinarily good or wonderful, something that is just really special, really, really amazing. Now, we have a word like this in Christianity. It's the word gospel. Here's what I mean by this, okay? The word gospel is a word that means good news. And what's happened in recent years in Christianity is the word gospel has almost become, stay with me, it's almost become something to say when you have nothing to say. It's a word that becomes a buzzword. We have the gospel project. We have the gospel coalition. We have together for the gospel. If you want to sell a book at Mardell's or Lifeway, you just add the word gospel on there, and there's this idea that people will flock to it and they'll buy it. And, and it becomes a buzzword. And we always want to be careful in church. If you don't come to church very often, is this, if this is kind of a newer place for you, you don't come very often, one of the things we want to try hard is not to use churchy words that are insider words and nobody else knows what's going on. If we ever use a word here, you don't know what it means, you didn't feel like a good explanation was given, send me an email. Talk to me afterward. We, we want to be very careful that we're not just falling back constantly on these buzzwords that we think we know what they mean, but we're not sure. So the word gospel can be like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It sounds like that to our ears, but here's the cool thing. It is an extraordinarily good word. It is a wonderful word. In fact, it is the word that holds us together as the church. I had a conversation this morning with some folks talking about what does it mean in church to make the main thing the main thing. We're constantly distracted. We're constantly caught off guard by stuff that just is petty and doesn't, doesn't really matter. The gospel is what holds us together. And what we have in 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the clearest, most straightforward pictures of the gospel that you're going to find in your New Testament. Kids, the words on the back of the bulletin this morning are very simple. You can follow along. Stay with me. This is so core, kids. Adults, do not lose sight of what it means that the gospel is at the core of who we are as a church, what our lives are about, what we believe, what we practice. We're going to see that on display this morning. This is a word, actually, that was used a lot in the ancient world, even outside religious settings. 
Uh, there's, a, there's an old inscription that was found by archaeologists that says, Providence has filled Caesar Augustus with virtue that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a savior. You think about someone who came as the savior of the world. Caesar was hailed as that savior. Since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world that came by reason of him. In the ancient world, people looked to the Roman Empire, they looked to Caesar Augustus, and they said, there's the gospel. Along comes Jesus Christ, and the people said, no, no, there's the gospel. There's the good news. Your New Testament is this battle, this tension between what is really good news. Is it the Roman Empire, or is it Jesus Christ? We live in a world where there's a constant battle about what really counts as good news. There's a lot of bad news out there. Where do you find the good news? And what we want to say this morning is the good news is found in and through Jesus Christ. The gospel holds us together. Okay, let's study this together. 1 Corinthians 15. Here's how Paul begins. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now that opening phrase, now I would remind, the word remind can mean remind, it has that idea, but it's also just the word to make something known, it's the word that's connected to the idea of knowledge. Here's the reason that's important. For the Corinthians, they were obsessed with knowledge. In fact, they thought they had all the knowledge. They thought they were really smart. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is he says, you think you're really smart. You think you have all the knowledge. Let me remind you. Let me make known to you the only true core knowledge that you really need. And so he's going to say, if you need to know something, if there's really something worth knowing, I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to make known to you, I'm going to remind you of the gospel. And then he gives them the how of how the gospel works. It's preached, it's received, you stand in it, and you are being saved by it. Those four words lay out what Paul gives them as this is how the gospel works. It is preached. Now the word preached up there. If, you get, if your eyes are good and you feel good about looking at the screen, in brackets, I put the word gospeled. When you hear the word preached, you think about something that I'm attempting to do right now. But the word that is used right there is not the word that we would think of traditionally for preaching. It's the word gospel turned into a verb. One of the frustrations in Christianity for the English language is it sounds weird when you use gospel as a verb. I gospeled. If you could learn how to turn gospel into a verb, it would open up the New Testament so much for us because the word gospel is often in your New Testament used as a verb, used as an action. Paul says, I gospeled to you. I just, I gave you good news. I preached this good news to you. It was something that was passed on, delivered to you. Secondly, which you have received. It's not something that you just sit and listen to. It's something to be embraced. So when good news is given, you can either reject it, push it to the side, you can say, oh, that's interesting, thanks for sharing that with me, or you can receive it and say, no, no, that, that is what I've always been looking for. You think about your life, you think about the time that you gave your life to Christ, 
all the attempts out there to say this is important, this is worth giving your life to, this is really good news, and you brush all those aside and say, no, no, that is good news. That I will receive, that I will embrace, because that is where I find life and where I find hope. It's gospel to you, it's good news that's given to you, it's received in which you stand. The gospel is not something that's received and then you go on to something else. (laughs) It's not something that's received and then you say, and what else do I get after this? It's where you stand. It's where you place your life and you continue to stand there. And you say, this is where I will stand on the good news of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. This is where I'm going to plant my life. And when you do that, it's not an act of stubbornness. It's an act of humility. It's an act of saying, only here do I find the good news that my life truly needs. And so I will stand here. We, we, we make stands on all kinds of issues. Stand here, stand in this, by which you are being saved. There's a sense in which God's work in our lives is ongoing. Are you saved? Do you receive the gospel at a particular time? Yeah, absolutely. There's a time at which you say, I can't do life on my own. I repent of my sins and I trust in Christ. But equally, there's a sense in which you are ongoing being saved. Either in your life or you probably know people who say, yeah, yeah, I was saved when I was a little kid at vacation Bible school. I remember being baptized, but, you know, I really haven't had much to do with church since then, and my life doesn't look a lot different. But don't worry, don't worry. I had an experience when I was a little kid a long time ago. I I was saved then. Paul is saying very clearly, if you've experienced the work of God in your life, you will continually be saved. Every day you will wake up and say, but for the grace of God, I have no hope in life. When we've experienced the salvation of God in our life, it's not this one-time thing that happened in the past that we move on from. It's something that happened in the past and continues to impact our life day after day after day. We are being saved. Some of you grew up in churches um, or you went to youth camp and you would say, and I was saved like, 10 times, 20 times. The preacher gave a really long invitation at the end of the service and somebody had to get saved because nobody was gonna leave the church if nobody responded to to the invitation. And so the teenagers would look at each other and say, man, who's getting saved this week? Because nobody gets saved, there's no no way we're going home. Theologically, theologically, there's actually something to that where you can say, God, I need you to save me today. I, I, I trust in the fact that once I have experienced the salvation of God, I can never lose that. Yes, absolutely, hold on to that. But every day I stand in need of the work of God in my life. Every day I stand in need of good news, which is why Paul says down here at the bottom, he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This idea of holding fast says This is not something I just hold on to and let go. I continue to hold on to the good news. What does it mean to believe in vain? That word vain is going to be important in our Easter uh, worship service this year, but believing in vain is this idea of believing recklessly, like, sure, I'll say a prayer, I'll sign a card, sign me up to be saved. But you give no thought to the fact that you've given your life over to the God of the universe. (laughs) 
It's not just, hey, sign me up for that. That sounds good. It's, no, I have repented of being in charge of my life, and I have given my life to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to follow him with everything I have. Paul says when you believe it has an effect. You don't believe in vain. You don't believe in a way that says, oh, I'll just go on live however I want to live. Let's go on to verse 3. Verse 3, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then in verse 5, you get into the appearances that we're going to look at in, in just a minute. So we know how the gospel works. It's preached. It's received, you stand in it, and you continue to experience that salvation. That's how the gospel works. But what are we talking about when we talk about the gospel? The first thing we know is that it's of first importance. You can argue about anything you want all over the place, but if you're saying, what is the main thing? If I'm going to be a part of a church, if I'm going to call myself a Christian, what is the main thing? And Paul says, this is of first importance. I preach this to you because if you'll get this right, all the other pieces will start to fall into place. Every day, every week, we come back to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because based on that, he will begin to transform our lives day after day. Here's the danger. The danger is saying, tell me how to live a better life, and then maybe I'll get to Jesus at some point. Paul says, no, of first importance is that you turn to Christ and then he will guide you on the path of living the life that he's called you to live. This is of first importance. You have to get this right up front as that foundation. Now, that doesn't mean that someone can't come to church, explore, listen, ask how you live. There. We need that. We need that. But what you're telling that person is, what's the foundation for your life? Paul says it's the gospel. It's of first importance. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The gospel is consistent, meaning each new generation doesn't get to make up a new gospel. In the book of Galatians, Paul gets so furious with the Galatians because he says that you've been accepting a different gospel, as if there is even such a thing. There's not. What I received, Paul says, is exactly what I delivered to you. All right, kids, how many of you at school have played the telephone game where someone whispers in your ear something and then you've got to turn around and whisper it in somebody else's ear? Yeah, so it starts out, somebody whispers in your ear, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and because by the time it gets to the last kid, somebody's having supper at their aunt's house and it's going to be delicious. And you're like, whoa, that's not what happened up front. We, we said one thing at the beginning and it was passed on and on and on and by the time it got to the end of the line, it became a completely new message. Paul says that's not how it works with the gospel. What I received is what I also passed on to you. Every generation works through new problems. Well, that's not true. Ecclesiastes says everything, there's nothing new under the sun. Every new generation has to kind of run up against new things that they face. Probably not new problems, but new ways that it manifests itself. You work through those things. But every new generation doesn't come up with new answers. We receive the answer that was passed on to us, which is the gospel, and then we will turn around to our, our own kids and say, this is the good news. 
this is what you want. It's what your grandparents had, what your great-grandparents had, what they had before them. There's a great story that uh, a pastor named Charles Spurgeon tells. Spurgeon was a famous uh, pastor in the 19th century and, and even up a little bit beyond that. But here's what he talks about. Spurgeon says, It does not often happen to me to be behind time. For I feel that punctuality is one of those little virtues which may prevent great sins. I like that. I like to be early. Early is my idea of, of being on time. I've inherited that from my grandfather. But, um, but he says, We have no control over railway delays and breakdowns, and so it happened that I reached my appointed place of preaching considerably behind the time. Like sensible people, they had begun their worship, and it proceeded as far as the sermon. If I ever don't show up on some Sunday morning, just start. Just go for it if I don't make it. As I neared the chapel, I perceived that someone was in the pulpit preaching. And who should that preacher be but my dear grandfather? He saw me as I came in at the front door and made my way up the aisle. And at once he said, here comes my grandson. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. As I made my way through the people, I answered, you can preach better than I can, grandfather. Go on. But he would not agree with it. I must take the sermon, and so I did, going on with the subject there and then, right where he left off. I could not feel any difficulty. Listen to what he says here. I could not feel any difficulty in taking from my grandfather the thread of his discourse and joining my own thread to it, because our agreement in the things of God made it easy for us to be joint preachers of the same message. Upon this, I was explaining the certainty of salvation when I had my coattail pulled and I turned around to see my beloved grandfather wanted to take his turn again. When he had had his say in a very gracious manner, his grandson was allowed to go on again to the dear old man's great delight. But once he said, tell them that point again, Charles, and of course I did tell them again. <laughs> this idea that God forbid something should happen to me in the middle of preaching the gospel, take care of my wife and kids, but keep preaching the gospel because there's no new message. What has started here being proclaimed, those of you who know the good news of Jesus Christ could just pick, pick up and keep going because you don't have to come up with something new. You don't need a new answer for the world. You don't need a new good news. Just pick it up and keep going. What I received from my grandparents through my parents is the same gospel I want to preach to my kids and pass on with the hopes that they will proclaim that same gospel. You say, how can you have that consistency? How do you have that stability? It is found in the italics on the screen. The reason Paul can say that what he received he passed on is because it was in accordance with the scriptures. Paul is saying that God is not changing his mind about his plan for the world all the time. We don't have to wake up every day, and this, is, this connects with what we said last week. Not the part last week where I said the wrong phrase four times and you all counted and told me afterward. Not, not that part of last week's sermon. God forbid, I'm so sorry, I messed that up. But uh, not that part of last week. The part last week about having peace and stability, peace and order, when you live in a world with all kinds of chaos, and you live in a world where new messages are coming at you all the time. Scroll through social media, new stuff comes at you all the time. The reason this is so important is because it forms that anchor. It forms that foundation. 
for our lives that hold steady. You can say based on God's plan that does not change, based on God's plan that was given to us in Scripture, this is my foundation. When Jesus appeared to the people after the resurrection, it says that he explained to them, he interpreted them things in all the scriptures about himself. He looked back to the Old Testament, he said, all of that points to me. On the basis of the word of God, we have stability, we have foundation. What is the message? The message is Christ. Died, buried, raised, appeared. Look at this next slide just for a moment. It's a quote from a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sorry, the quote's a little bit longer than it would have been good for a slide, but let me read it to you. Bonhoeffer says, It is Christ's story which gives meaning to our lives, not our story which gives meaning to Christ's life. Listen to this next part, kids. This is crucial. The fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I will die. And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too will be raised on the day of judgment. Our salvation is from outside ourselves. I find salvation not in my life story, but only in the story of Jesus Christ. If ever for a moment in your life you are tempted to say, I have to hold things together, Banish that thought because you cannot hold things together. Your salvation is not found in your ability to hold things together because you may be in a situation in life that you absolutely cannot hold things together right now. Stuff is spinning out of control. You don't know what's going on. Your salvation, your hope does not come from your own ability to do that. It comes from the story of Jesus Christ. Who he is, what he has done, and why he matters. What has he done? Well, you go back to those slides. He died. This is to counteract that idea that maybe Jesus just looked like he died on the cross. No, he really did die. And he died for our sins. He stood in our place. He took upon himself what was due us. He took that penalty. He died for our sins in our place. He was our substitute. Secondly, he was buried. You say, well, why would they mention he was buried. Well, partly to do away with the ideas that maybe his disciples came away and stole the body, or maybe something, he just reappeared in another place. No, he was, he was really buried. And what happens in these four words up here, died, buried, raised, appeared? The first word is the key word. The following word confirms that. So it's, it's key that he died. Buried shows that he really died. It's key that he was raised appeared shows that he was really raised. You see how that works? One in three died and raised are the key, the key ideas. Two and four are meant to be the confirmation that those things really happened. Died, buried, raised, appeared. The idea that Christ was raised on the third day is going to be our focus all throughout the month of April. So we're just going to pound that week after week after week. What does it mean that Christ was raised? That's going to be our focus in 1 Corinthians 15. Down there at the bottom, the idea that he appeared, let's look at those appearances just for a second before we get to the final verse. It says that he appeared to Cephas, who, who is Peter. And then a little bit surprisingly, right after that it says, then he appeared to the twelve. Why would it go in that order? Well, Peter, in some sense, was the ringleader for the twelve. So he's mentioned first, then the twelve are mentioned. A lot of world religions, and we don't want to get into 
the point this morning, we don't have time to do this. We don't get into a huge debate right now about world religions, but one thing that really does draw me to Christianity, one thing that I would say sets Christianity apart in, in some ways, is some religions you'll hear about how God appeared to one particular individual and really only that particular individual. And so anything that we would know about God's appearance to someone comes through one particular person. In Christianity, Christ, after he was raised, appeared to many, many people. It was not just Peter's message. It was Peter's message plus all these other people. So it's crucial that it's not just Peter up here. It's then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Sometimes people, when you start to see those Easter season shows that show up on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel and everyone has their own take on the resurrection, sometimes you'll hear that Jesus' resurrection was a mass hallucination. There is just no evidence anywhere that mass hallucination takes place among 500 people at one time. It's completely unheard of that Christ really did appear to them. Then he appeared to James. Why is it significant that he appeared to James? Well, James is going to be the foundation of the church. You start to see that happening in Acts chapter 15. But here's the other thing. It's very likely that before Christ appeared to James, that James did not believe in him. This is referring to James, who was the brother of Jesus, that would become kind of the foundation of the church. We know from the book of John that his brothers did believe in him most of his ministry. But by the time you get to the book of Acts, they're leaders in, in the church. People don't have false hallucinations of someone when they really didn't believe that person was going to be raised in the first place. And so the reference to James is meant to cut out this idea that James was really expecting his brother to come back from the dead. No, he wasn't. He thought his brother was wrong and he had died, but when he appears to him, then he begins to believe. Down at the bottom, then he appeared to all the apostles. That may be a reference to the Matthew 28 story there at the end when Jesus gives the Great Commission. We don't know that. It could be just as likely be a reference to Acts chapter 1 when he ascends into heaven. So it's either Matthew 28 or Acts 1. It's hard to tell. All right, let's get to Paul because Paul is at the core of this. What does it mean when it says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me? That's the reference to Jesus appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9. Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. This is where Paul is saying, I came after these other guys. I don't deserve to walk in their sandals. I don't deserve to be in the same class as them. But Christ appeared to me even though I was unworthy. Why is that good news? Well, just point all ten fingers back at yourself and it'll feel like good news all of a sudden. Because none of us is worthy to experience the power of God in our lives through Jesus Christ. Every one of us can say with Paul, I am unworthy. I am least and I'm last, but it's only because of God's grace. Look at the next slide when we get down to verse 10, where Paul says down there, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Every one of us can raise our hand and say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Were it not for God's work in our life, every one of us would be without hope. It is only because of his grace, only because of his transforming power in our lives that we have hope through Christ. 
by God's grace, I am what I am. Never say, this is who I am, I can't ever change, I can't ever be any different, this is just who I am, it's always who, no, no, no. By the grace of God, I am what I am. God is able to transform our lives from the inside out. And then Paul goes on to say, he says, his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So when we talk about the gospel message, it's not only a gospel that changes our life, that transforms us from the inside out, but it's a gospel that drives the way that we live. So the gospel wasn't just me being saved in the past, it's the power that continues to impact the way I live now. And so when I experience the gospel, it's not a cheap grace that says, hey, good, I'm saved, I can live however I want. No, it's a costly grace that says, and this is what I'm gonna give my life to. This is everything that my life is going to be about. I'm gonna work harder than anybody. Paul knew that he had been saved for much, and so he was gonna give everything that he had. Let me take a very minor detour here. When you read a story, a testimony like Paul's, it feels like when our friends from Hope is Alive were here a few weeks ago, and you hear stories of someone caught in addiction, and you see how God has brought them out and transformed their life, and there's that little bit of your junior high self that starts to kick in and think, man, I wish I had a cool testimony like they do. Uh, like, God really saved them from a bunch. What do you do if you grew up in church? Or what do you do if you have a testimony where life never went 100 miles sideways before coming back? Now, there's, I love those stories, and we need to hear more of them. And I pray that God does those stories here where someone's life is going 100 miles sideways and he brings them back. What if that's not the case, though? What if maybe you came to faith early in life? That's essentially my story. In fact, it is my story, that growing up in church and, and coming to trust in Christ as a, as a young kid and doing my best along the way by his grace to follow him. Here's what I found, and I don't have as many years under my belt as, as some of you, but you're gonna hopefully agree with me on this. The longer I go in life, the more I realize what God has really saved me from. In other words, what I'm trying to say is the longer I go in life, the more I realize what a picture of my life would probably look like without Christ. And you start to realize what an ugly picture that would be. And you start to see those sins that you fight against still, and you realize, were it not for God's grace in my life, I can lay out what this would probably look like without him. And the more you do that, the more you realize the power of his grace in your life. Does it mean you chase after sin so God can forgive you of more? No, Romans 6 says that's a really bad idea. Don't, don't do that. We don't sin more to get more grace. But the more you experience God's grace in your life, the more you realize without him, I would be in a lot of trouble. I would be an apathetic, indifferent, prideful, completely secluded person were it not for the grace of God in my life. And the more I live, the more I see what that picture would look like. And so you don't have to have a story like Paul to come to appreciate what it is to experience God's grace in your life. Kids, we don't want you to develop bad testimonies on purpose. Love Jesus, follow Jesus, go after him. The older you get, the more you'll realize the problems and struggles that you have in life. You don't need to make up other ones along the way. We, we have plenty of problems day after day, challenges that we face. We want you to follow Christ, and the more you go, the more, I, the more you realize God's grace in your life. So he transforms us, and then he empowers us to work for him. The more you realize what God's done for you, the more you want to be able to serve him. 
Which brings us to the very final point on, on your notes. Down there in verse 11, Paul says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Verse 11 brings the whole thing full circle back up to verse 1. What did the gospel do? The fact that Christ died, buried, resurrected, appeared. What did that do for Paul? It transformed his life. It empowered his life. And then it became the message of his life. Where he said, because of what God has done for me, I'm going to do everything I can to tell this to others. What I have received, I'm going to pass on to others. All I can do, I don't need to come up with a new slick way to do it. I don't need to come up with a new message, a new opportunity. What Christ has done for me, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to share it with someone else. And sometimes we think of only doing that with people who are not Christians. Don't miss the power of sharing with other Christians the picture of God's grace in your life. If you're ever meeting together with a group of believers and you're just not sure what to talk about, start to share your testimony. Start to talk about God's power and grace at work in your life because there's a good chance that many of us in here don't know each other's stories. And if we don't know each other's stories, if we're not sharing about God's grace in our lives in here, it's going to feel very awkward and unnatural to share with other people that God puts in our path. The more we're talking about God's grace in our life, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, but that he was resurrected, and in him we have hope because his grace has appeared to us, that's the message we have. Here's the interesting thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Now, that should sound incredibly familiar. It should sound just like what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, What I received, I delivered. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That gospel message that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 one of the ways it's lived out by the church is when they gather to take part in the Lord's Supper, saying, this is what holds us together. This is the core of our identity. This is the core of our church. This is what we want to proclaim to each other, and this is what we want to proclaim to the world. And so there's really no better response this morning to God's word than for us to be able to do that together. So here in just a few moments, we're going to take of the Lord's Supper together. Before we do that, though, if you're here visiting or you're with family, friends, and you would say, okay, I, I think maybe I got a sort of a fair idea of what's going on here, but I'm just not a follower of Jesus, there's no embarrassment or shame in passing the plate to the next person. Eating this cracker and drinking this juice is not going to make you a new person from the inside out. That happens when you say, you know what, I can't control my life, I turn from my sins, I give my life to Christ. I would pray that you would do that this morning. If you don't know how to do that, one option is there's a prayer at the bottom of the bulletin on the back side. Not magic words, you don't have to repeat those words after exactly that order, but I wanted to give that to you for you to be able to look at. The other option is as soon as we've seen our final song, I stay down here at the front. And I would love to talk with you about God's work in your life. 
Maybe it's trusting him for the first time, or maybe it's that you're at a really hard time in life and you've lost sight of that gospel message and you just need to repent and, and turn back to the Lord. Parents with kids, I know we talk about this when we take the Lord's Supper, if your kids have trusted in Christ for salvation, this is their chance to be able to, to celebrate with the church. They're a part of the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. If they have not trusted in Christ for salvation, this is the perfect opportunity to talk to them about what that means and, and what that looks like. And so we're going to be able to do that. All right. I want to be able to pray for us. And after I pray for us, we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper together. Father, I thank you for your word in 1 Corinthians 15. I know there's a lot of people who could have stood up here on stage and preached the gospel better than I just did, but they couldn't preach a better gospel. God, there is no better news than the fact that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, but then he was raised again, And by your grace, that power has been made known to us. He's appeared to us. He's appeared to his people. And even as we gather together right now for the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of that. We're seeing tangible objects like a cracker and juice. We're being reminded of what he has done for us. God, I pray for Emmaus. Father, I pray that in taking the Lord's Supper right now, that we're reminded of what is really core to our identity. God, and we know it's so easy to be distracted and taken off, off track. But God, by your spirit, would you use this time to unify us around the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the one who holds us together. He is our life and our hope and our joy. And Father, we want to proclaim and share that with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.